Take your Bibles and remain standing as we read God's Word this morning. I'm going to be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 14. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 14. And the Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You may be seated. We do want to remind you that the missions course is coming up starting on September 19th on Tuesday nights for six weeks. There's child care, there's free tacos. Um, it's a great time to be uh, involved and be a part of that where we see God's plan for the world through his people. So I would encourage you to be a part of that. And also, um, this morning as we continue in our service, we want to remember and pray for a couple of our missionaries. Uh, we want to pray for Ted and Kaylin Offit, who train leaders and missionaries and church planters throughout the world. And they are based in Atlanta, Georgia, with Encompass World Partners. So we want to remember them this morning. So pray with me. Lord God, we come before you recognizing this morning that we have no right to come to you, no right to come before your throne. God, we are stained by sin. We are rebels who have pushed against your sovereignty and your authority. God, we have failed to recognize that you are king of the universe and worthy of praise, worthy of obedience. And so, God, as rebels, we are condemned and separated from you we are under your wrath under your punishment and rightfully so except for one thing god you have sent your son jesus christ god in the flesh the infinite one who came to pay our infinite sacrifice got a a penalty that we could not pay god that we do not have the means to pay that god our works are worth nothing before you because of your greatness, your holiness, your majesty, and our sinfulness. But God, through faith in Jesus, God, he bore our sin. He bore our shame. He paid the penalty on our behalf. And when we see him as our only hope, we see him as our ultimate treasure. God, you have put our sin on him and have put his righteousness on us, and we can stand before you righteous and pure and clean and holy 
because of Jesus. And so, God, we gather this morning recognizing Jesus as our King, Jesus as our Lord. God, we know that we live in a world that is broken. God, a world that is marked by strife and conflict and sin and rebellion. And God, we see so much of this world drifting, and not only drifting, but running away from you. And yet, God, we know that you still reign, you are sovereign, and not one thing happens in this world apart from your purpose and plan, and God, that you have promised ultimate joy to those who belong to you. And so, God, may we cling evermore to Jesus, may we trust in your sovereignty, May we look forward expectantly to how you work all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And God, for anyone who is here this morning that doesn't know Jesus, God, that maybe doesn't even recognize their need for a Savior, God, would you open their eyes, open their hearts, and let the reality of the gospel be loud and clear this morning. God, would you change eternities this morning through the power of your word. And so we commit this time to you. God, we are thankful for Ted and Kaylin and their desire to make Jesus known throughout the world. Would you strengthen and encourage them as they train leaders to proclaim the name of Jesus to all the corners of this world. God, would you allow them to be effective, to see fruit from their labors, and that Jesus would be magnified through their ministry and through what they would do. God, that's our prayer for Ted and Kaylin. That's our prayer for our own lives, and that's our prayer for even this service this morning. God, we want to see Jesus high and lifted up. So allow that to happen through our singing, through our preaching, through our fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so we sing this morning, Still my soul be still, do not be moved by lesser lights or fleeting shadows. Hold onto his ways with shield of faith against temptation's flaming arrows. God, you are my God, and I will trust in you and not be shaken. Lord, a peace renew, a steadfast spirit within me to rest in you alone. Let's sing Still my soul be still together. And if you would stand once again as we continue worshiping.
I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy in life had led me to. we thank you for your amazing grace towards us in sending your son to die in our place and bear the penalty for our sin. Lord, as sinners, there is nothing that we are able to do to restore ourselves to you, Lord, or to please or impress you with our goodness. Lord, it is simply by faith in the finished work of Christ that we have eternal life and a living hope in you. Lord, we are so thankful for your amazing mercy and compassion towards us. We ask for hearts that are 
open and receptive to your word this morning, Lord. We know that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, Lord. And we pray for your grace towards us this morning as we would hear your word, Lord. Would it, would it shape our hearts and minds to become more like Christ? We are so thankful, Lord, and we love you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Uh, you may be seated, and good morning. Good morning. It is good to be uh, with you. I know I'm not the face you're used to seeing. Pastor Mike is preaching in beautiful Bakersfield this morning, and so, so you're stuck with me. Uh, sorry I had to go that way. If you're new here, come back next week. But I am excited to be with you. Uh, we have spent several weeks now in the book of 2 Timothy, and I'll invite you to turn there if you haven't already to 2 Timothy. Uh, a few weeks ago, Andrew preached uh, Remember Jesus Christ from 2 Timothy chapter 2. For two weeks after that, Mike was preaching on the importance of the word rightly handled from chapter 2 also. Next week, Mike will be wrapping up our time in 2 Timothy, preaching on the tough subject of how do you love and care for people who have uh, walked away from the church, from chapters 2 all the way through chapter 4. And today, we get to uh, spend time in chapter 1, and actually just one verse in chapter 1, looking at verse 8. So let me read that again, and then we'll get into this this morning. Paul writes to Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. All right, so to get us uh, oriented this morning, I just want to ask you to imagine with me a world that's very similar to our own, but with one uh, key difference. Christianity is just a fledgling religion with zero cultural influence. There's no such thing as Saddleback Church, Mariner's Church, Grace Community Church. Actually, no one's even thought yet of making a church building at all. You could drive around the south for hours and not see a single steeple. Uh, there's no such thing as Christian media. No radio, online sermons, websites, no publications like Desiring God, Gospel Coalition, Voice of the Martyrs. No one's heard of Billy Graham, John MacArthur, Chuck Smith, John Piper, Augustine, Aquinas. Even Joel Osteen is unknown. There's no such thing as Christian political and social influence. There are no lobbying groups representing Christian values to Congress, no major politicians who've trusted in Jesus. There is no religious, uh, religious right. Christians wouldn't even show up on any major poll as a distinct demographic. Want to read the Bible? There is none. New Testament doesn't exist in bound form. You couldn't even get your hands on one copy of a gospel or an epistle. And forget about Christian publishing. There's no lighthouse bookstore, although maybe there's no lighthouse bookstore anymore anyways. Uh, there's no ordering Christian books online. There is no Pilgrim's Progress. There is no uh, family worship Bible guide that Pastor Mike likes to hand out. There's not even the MacArthur Study Bible. None of this exists. Christian literature just isn't a thing. If you are a Christian, you're one of the few. Looking at the global population, less than 0.0001 have trusted in Jesus. Almost all of them are immature by our standards. Many are still struggling with basic sin issues, and some of those who do profess to know Christ will shortly abandon him. Some already have. There's one bright spot in all of this. A significant leader, brilliant, eloquent, educated, culturally relevant, of respectable pedigree, well-traveled, well-regarded. There's just one downside with him. He's about to have his head chopped off in federal prison. Welcome to the world of the New Testament, and welcome to the world of 2 Timothy. When Paul picked up a reed pen and papyrus to write this letter to Timothy, 
the world was almost unimaginably different than the one that we live in. Christianity was small, untried, fragile. Um, Paul and Jesus and the apostles and the Old Testament prophets and even earlier, the New Testament writers and Old Testament had looked forward to a day where the gospel would, would impact the entire earth. The prophets Daniel said that there was going to be a kingdom that would rise to crush all other kingdoms. Isaiah said the coastlands, the furthest ends of the earth, wait for the rule and law of the king. Abraham heard a promise that in his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But as Paul was rotting away in a Roman prison, it did not immediately uh, look that that was going to be the case. It wasn't evident that the gospel was going to prevail, that the message of Christ was going to triumph. And so he picks up, again, the pen to write to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, I'm about to go home. If this thing is going to go off, you need to do something, and what you need to do is you need to hold on to the gospel for dear life. And the message that Paul gives to Timothy and through Timothy to all believers for all time after him, including you and me, is actually captured in, in like uh, topic sentence type form in verse 8, our verse. And it boils down to just two commands from Paul to Timothy and to us. Cherish the gospel, share in suffering. Cherish the gospel, share in suffering. If the word of Christ is to prevail, if Jesus is to rule, if the church will triumph, we need to be a people. Timothy needed to be a person who cherished the gospel and shared in suffering. Today our orders remain unchanged. So what I want to do this morning is just think together from this text about what it would look like for us to be a people at this particular local church in this time who would be faithful to Christ, who would carry the marching orders that he's given us, I sometimes think about faithfulness for our church, not just this year, not even just in the next few years. Is Grace Church of Orange going to be a faithful, bright light for the gospel in 25 years, in 50 years, in 100 years? If it is, we have a role to play today, to be faithful to Christ, to cherish the gospel, and to share in the suffering that would come as a result. So for a roadmap this morning, uh, we'll try to keep it simple and break things out just along these two commands. So we'll say first, uh, cherish the gospel. Second, share in suffering. And let's start with that first point, cherish the gospel. Paul writes in verse 8, put your eyes on it, to Timothy, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And I've put it in the positive sense, cherish the gospel, but Paul actually puts it to, to Timothy in the negative. Don't be ashamed, Timothy, of the gospel. And this is like, again, topic sentence or seed form, an expression of something that's going to uh, come up again and again throughout the letter. Listen to just a few passages. In 1.14, Paul tells Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 2.2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 3.14, Continue, Timothy, in what you have learned and firmly believe. And finally, in chapter 4, in what is one of the most heavy-handed charges in all the New Testament, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. If Timothy was to be faithful, if the gospel was to triumph, he needed to cherish and hold without shame the gospel of Jesus. 
If this picture helps you, I don't know if you're a football person, but this is the picture that's coming to mind for me. The NFL season is starting soon, right? I should know this. I'm, I got dragged into a fantasy football league. Um, if this picture helps, I imagine a little rookie running back who's just quaking in his boots on the bench. And suddenly, the starter gets injured and goes out. And the coach walks up to this running back and says, Son, you're about to go in the game. I don't care who hits you. I don't care how big they are. I don't care how bad it hurts. I don't even care all that much about how far you make it down the field. Can you just do this for me? Don't let go of the football. Don't let go of the football. We're up by like a thousand points. Just hold on to it. Hold on to the football. That was Timothy's call. That's our call. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Hold on to it. Cherish it. Guard it. Preserve it. Pass it on. Proclaim it. Preach it. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. We're not going to be heroes, but we can be people who just say, whatever's coming, I want to hold on to this message of the good news that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. So, um, that's what we're going to look at together right now. The problem is, just like Timothy would be tempted to be, we often find ourselves ashamed of the gospel rather than boldly proclaiming it. We're cowardly instead of courageous. We don't cherish the gospel like we should. Probably every one of us who's a believer has experienced that sting of shame of walking away from a conversation where we've strategically dodged an opportunity for the gospel. Um, we need help. And Timothy needed help and encouragement too. Paul wrote to him just in the verse before, for God has given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So maybe even in Timothy's heart, there was something that was timid or held back, and, and we find ourselves in the same position. And so we need to hear Paul's encouragement to Timothy and think about what it would look like for us to be unashamed. So let's do this. I want to first think about why is it that we're ashamed, and then we'll start to think about how we can draw some strength and help from this passage. But first off, why are we ashamed of the gospel? There are many reasons, I guess, that we're ashamed. Um, depending on your circumstances, being bold for Christ could result in some kind of overt loss, maybe the loss of a job or being overlooked for a promotion. Uh, it could result in a division in your family, uh, the separation of a close friendship. Being bold for Christ could get you mocking, insults. Uh, it could re uh, result in you being thrown out of an inner circle of friends, a group of people that you care about. All those things can be true. Uh, can I just offer a reason a little bit closer to home? I think that for many of us, we're afraid to be unashamed because sometimes it can just be so darn awkward to bring up Jesus with unbelievers that we know. And we don't want, deep down, we don't want to experience the shame of being looped in with those weird Christians. Is it just me? Am I the only one? I, 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 thank you. I appreciate that in the front row. I don't think it's just me. Uh, if you want to test my theory, do this. Just, just, uh, uh, yeah. If you want to change the mood in a conversation with an unbeliever, just get the word Jesus out of your mouth. It's going to change. It's going to change. Just a few nights ago, Emily and I were in a grocery store, and we're talking to this older clerk, really friendly guy, very talkative guy. And the conversation like, kind of trends toward maybe like a spiritual realm. And my heart's like beating because I'm thinking, in two days, I'm, I'm preaching about not being ashamed. I can't, I can't miss this one. Um, and so I just kind of say, like against my better instincts, you know, my wife and I are Christians, and we believe in Jesus, and we believe that he's going to make everything right in the end. And it, and it changed the mood. It, it changes things. All of a sudden, and I think this is what can hold us back, 
when we align ourselves with Christ, we are in danger of being lumped in with people who believe in the Easter Bunny, who still put out cookies for Santa Claus, who don't believe in science, who are old-fashioned, who are outmoded, who are silly and cute for believing something so simplistic and so naive. And so the cost that we have here isn't the cost that our brothers and sisters have around the world, sharing and suffering that, that we can hardly imagine. But there is a cost, and it's a cost of being counted among Christ's followers and bearing the shame that comes with that in our society. And if we're reading the tea leaves, I don't think that the shame is decreasing. Christianity as a lame group is on the rise. Uh, in other words, more and more Christians in our society are seen as some of the biggest losers around. Um, Paul understood the dynamics of this. Uh, he actually says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of not only, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Paul understood that sometimes our shame comes not just from specifically and concretely being connected with Jesus, but actually being connected with his people, especially when they seem silly or seem to be, uh, seem to be suffering. Paul says later in the letter, when I stood trial, no one stood by me. Apparently, we aren't the only ones who would be inclined to, to run away from an opportunity to stand with Christians when they seem to be the silly ones. So all of this to say, um, we need help. We need help to be the kind of people who would have a boldness about the gospel, who would overcome anything in us that would be pulled back from wanting to be identified with Christ's people. And so let's think uh, for a moment about uh, what it might look like to be unashamed. Oh, you know what? Before we do that, I wanted to read one text message. Um, sometimes just to be associated with this church might be enough. Uh, someone I know uh, asked somebody out to lunch and got, not in a date, but asked someone out to lunch and got this in response. What for? My entire life, you and your church family and your family, I'm sorry, you and your church and your family have just preached hate towards my gay friends. I haven't seen you guys do anything as Christians, standing up for social justice, and quite frankly, I'm embarrassed to be related to you. For you to participate in that church that has so much hate subtly masked is contradictory and hypocritical. I don't know if you remember anything about Jesus, but he loved everything and everyone except hypocrisy. Good day with day in all caps. I don't know if you've ever gotten a message like that, but it's not so far-fetched to think that more and more of this kind of thing is going to be the reality that we live in. And so we need help to be unashamed. Um, to work, begin to work towards a solution here. Uh, I just want to ask you to consider this. I think that people actually do potentially shameful things all the time as long as they have a love that's compelling them, that's stronger than any potential shame. Um, high school boys risk it all to ask a girl to prom with a big poster in front of all their friends. There's potential shame there, but if they care enough about that girl and want to go to prom, they're like, I'm not thinking about that. I'm just going to go for it. A man risks it all to propose to a woman that he loves on a crowded beach, not thinking of the shame, just thinking of how much he loves that woman. Sports fans routinely root for their team, even when they're the away team, and they're the only one sitting with that colored jersey in the stands. I'm looking at my brother-in-law right now, who often can be seen in an Angels game, wearing Giants gear. Uh, and we all shake our head. Uh, people, people generally are not ashamed of the things that they love. People are not ashamed of the things that they love. So what I want to submit to you is this. 
The path towards becoming unashamed of the gospel is the path of growing in our understanding of the gospel and our love for its hero until these things plunge down so deep into our souls that they become everything to us. If we're to be a people who are unashamed, our greatest need is not more strength, more courage, more fearlessness, better tactics, more boldness. It's actually this. We need to know and love and cherish the gospel with all of who we are. We need to see Jesus, the hero of the gospel, as the one that we love more than anything else in the world that we would give anything for because we've seen how great he is. And I think that one of the reasons so many Christians find themselves ashamed and embarrassed of the gospel is that our view of Jesus can be inch tall. Uh, Our gospel is tiny and paper thin. We might be able to repeat a little formula, but we haven't seen and tasted the depth and breadth and height and length and richness of the gospel. And in that respect, we are so, so unlike Paul. Because for him, the gospel was everything. Just here, if you look with me at the verses uh, that follow ours, Paul gives a little bit of a, he just kind of turns aside, wanting to express the gospel to Timothy. And even there, we begin to see something of how great his view of the gospel was. He says in verse 9, well, I'll read from verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. This is a gospel which has accomplished a previously impossible rescue and initiated Paul and Timothy to a privileged holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, a gospel that's all about God's glory expressed in free grace to the undeserving, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, a gospel of eternal scope with everlasting purposes according to God's wisdom, and which has been manifested now through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, a gospel that's near and vital and real and historical through the person of Jesus, who abolished death, a gospel that deals with the greatest problem in the world and brought life, and immortality to light through the gospel, a gospel that provides the greatest hope humanity could ever have dreamed of. And as if all of that wasn't enough, the gospel wins in the end. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. He says in 11, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher of this gospel, which is why I suffer as I do. And then he actually lets us in on why he's not ashamed. And he says, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I always used to read this verse thinking, oh yeah, Paul's not ashamed because he knows that God is able to guard heaven, his inheritance, these kind of things. True, but that's actually not what Paul's saying here. He says God is able to guard what has been entrusted to me. And what was it that had been entrusted to Paul? The message of the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed because I know that God is able to take care of and eventually see it triumph the message that's been entrusted to me of the gospel. Why would I be ashamed? If you could, if you could go forward a day, a time travel a day into the future and then come back, you'd be like the greatest gambler in the history of the earth. You would go to the horse races and bet right every single time. Now, I'm not saying you should go to the horse races, but imagine that. If you know that something is true, you feel free to just push in all your chips on that. If you got a a personal line from God today saying, I back this stock on the S&P 500, it's going to explode. I think 
I'm not a financial guy. I think you should dump your whole portfolio into that stock. If you had the guarantee, there'd be no reason not to do that. Why would it be any different with the gospel? We know that it's going to win. The gospel will prevail. It will triumph. Jesus will reign until he's crushed every enemy under his feet. And so we'd be, we'd be silly to not want to hold on to and cherish and not be ashamed of the gospel. Paul is unashamed to suffer as a preacher and teacher of this gospel. It had gone down so deep into his bones that it changed every molecule of his personal universe. It was the ground zero that everything else in his life was built upon. Paul loved Jesus Christ. The gospel had shaped him at the deepest level. If we become a a people who are so impacted by the gospel, we won't have to ask questions anymore about how can we be more unashamed, how can we be strategic in that. We'll love the gospel, and we'll find ourselves living without shame. Um, Just a picture to try to maybe help put a a little bit of an image to this. Have you ever gone on a vacation with your family, and when you get to the rental house and you walk through the front door, you realize it's like the kind of house that it seems like the, the architect or designer designed it for clowns to live in? Do you know what I'm talking about? There's stairways that like go nowhere. There's basements that are furnished, and there's other rooms that are like completely empty. There's three kitchens. There's like three-foot-tall doors that go into tiny rooms with tinier doors that go into tinier rooms. And, and you're just like, what is going on here? Well, I just want to ask you to think about a contrast with me. And the contrast is between how an adult would approach that moment and how a kid would approach that moment. An adult walks through that door, and immediately you hear grumbling about how we should have looked more closely at the Airbnb pictures. There's some murmuring about an open floor plan and how inconvenient this is going to make the trip. In contrast, a kid walks through that door, and it's like they've entered paradise. Endless intrigue awaits. Hide-and-seek games, secret forts to build, new places to explore in the house. Um, speaking for all of us, and myself probably most of all, I think that a lot of times our approach to the gospel and to the Bible resembles the adult in that situation much more than that of the kid. Endless intrigue awaits. So much richness, depth, texture, glory. But we can be content oftentimes because we just want to keep things simple, don't do anything too crazy. We just stick with our simple formulations. Oh, I know Jesus died for my sins. I believe in him and I'm going to have eternal life. We miss out on the greatness. And the gospel doesn't plunge into our hearts in the way that it did for Paul. We're not ashamed of the things that we love. And if we're going to be a a people, a church who are unashamed, we need to be people who would pray that collectively God would help us to cherish the good news of Christ. Um, Two more things to say, and then we'll move on to our second point. Just a first thought. What if you have been ashamed? What if you're just sitting here in real time kind of thinking about this, and you're realizing, man, like I have not been about the gospel. I've just been trying to keep my head down, not bring attention to myself. You, you, maybe there's a, a sin issue that you've allowed to get a hold in your life that's blunting your usefulness to Christ. I just want to turn your mind to, to John chapter 21. Um, among all of the great betrayals in history, Brutus with Caesar, Benedict Arnold, I think Peter denying Jesus three times on the night of his crucifixion ranks pretty high, maybe the first. And how does Jesus restore Peter? Well, as they're eating breakfast on the Sea of Galilee, three times he asked Peter the same question. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? 
And I would just want to open a door for you if you have been in that place of trying to avoid a witness for Christ. Maybe you've realized you've been unfaithful to him. To come back to this one who's so gracious and say, Lord, I do love you. I'm sorry. I have not been engaged in the work like you've asked me to be. Would you take me back? And that's exactly what Jesus does with Peter. Peter, feed my sheep. And by the way, you're going to have a terrible death. But, but Jesus, seeing into Peter's heart, knows that this man is going to be faithful to him. So if you've been unfaithful, our, our Jesus, our Savior, is merciful. And he takes back those who have wandered away. Uh, second, I want to speak directly to anyone in the room who has not yet become a follower of Jesus. My friend, whoever you are, behind all your intellectual arguments, your scientific hang-ups, your philosophical reservations, the questions that remain unanswered, is it possible that at the very bottom, beneath all of that, you're simply ashamed at the thought of being identified with this Jesus? Ashamed at the thought of acknowledging that all of your life up to this point has been bankrupt because you've been living in rebellion against your Creator? Is it possible that there's shame at the thought of being identified with his people, those weak Christians who need the crutch of Jesus to live their life? If that's you, I would just, I would just say to you, if Jesus of Nazareth really rose from the grave, then he's the Lord of all. Everything he said is true. And I, I know, I promise you, if you're on a debate team, you do not want to take the side of arguing that he stayed in the grave. Jesus is Lord, and I would just, man, I'd plead with you, Come and trust in Jesus. Many of us here have come to, to trust in him, to bear with him the shame of all that it means to be a Christian. And it's, it's the only road of access into true life. All right, we've got to move on. We're going to our second point, which is that if we are to be faithful to Christ's call for us, it is going to necessitate that we share in suffering. First, we need to cherish the gospel. Second, we need to be a people who share in suffering. And to be honest, this is the point where I really wish the sermon could just be over. I, I'm going I'm to confess something. I don't like to suffer. I bet you don't like to suffer. And if that's not true, let's talk after the service because there's you know, something that needs to be fixed there. I'm not, I'm not a fan of suffering. I don't want to suffer. I don't want my wife to suffer. I don't want my daughter to suffer. I don't want our church to suffer. We don't, we're not a people who are gluttons for suffering or chasing after suffering as though it was something that we wanted. Leave suffering out of it. I don't even like to be uncomfortable. I don't like it when the water heater breaks and I have to take a cold shower. I have, my, my air conditioning in my truck is broken. I've been driving around hot all summer. I am not a fan. I prefer my water to be ice cold rather than room temperature. Maybe you're like me. We're creatures of comfort. Uh, we, don't, we don't like the thought of suffering. But I'll tell you what, we love Jesus, and we want to be faithful to him. And if it's his will that we undergo suffering as a part of our witness for him, then we need to be a people who would be prepared to go through that. And so what I'd like to do right now is point out five truths about Christian suffering um, that we see here, and then move into some, just some practical applications for us. So five truths about Christian suffering. I'll try to move through these somewhat quickly. Number one. Suffering is necessary. Suffering is necessary. Paul says to Timothy, share in suffering. It's a command, an imperative, not an option. Throughout the letter, this theme comes up again and again. Timothy, you're going to suffer. Listen especially to verse uh, 12 of chapter 3. Indeed, all, all means all, 
who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't suffer. Our suffering will be different depending on our circumstances, but the commonality is that you will suffer. Everybody who desires to be faithful to Christ will suffer. Paul, elsewhere in Romans 8, includes suffering as an aspect of the life that will be qualified eventually by the Lord to actually receive the inheritance of an heir, to be glorified with Christ. Romans 8, 17. If we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, dot, 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 provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. And if we were to just flip through the New Testament, we could hardly turn a page without seeing the same theme come to the surface. We will suffer, and it's necessary. Why is it necessary? Among other reasons, and this gives great hope and purpose to us in our suffering, uh, God has designed that in our suffering we have the best opportunity to embody and amplify the message of Jesus. The gospel never looks more bewilderingly attractive to unbelievers than when a believer is being faithful to, the Christ, uh, faithful to Christ in the midst of horrible suffering. There's nothing like it. Somebody who just says, I am going to be for Jesus no matter what comes, I, I think the world just can't explain it. And Paul, probably more than maybe anybody who's ever lived, knew this. In Colossians 1.4, I'm sorry, 1.24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I rejoice in them. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Paul understood that part of his ministry of the gospel was to share with Christ in suffering, shame, hardship, calamity, persecution, in all of these things, the gospel would be put on display. We are not, like I said, we're not gluttons for suffering. Paul even, he didn't want to suffer either. Remember when he leveraged his Roman citizenship so that he wouldn't have to take a beating? Remember when he let someone let him down through the wall of the city in a basket to dodge some bloodthirsty Jews? Uh, Paul didn't want to suffer either, but he understood that in God's sovereignty, his suffering would be a vehicle for the advance of the gospel, and so he was willing to embrace it. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Uh, more to say there, but I want to move on. Number two, a second truth about suffering. We suffer as a community. We suffer as a community. I love, and this is such a, this is such a happy one, I love that Paul's command to Timothy is not Timothy suffer for the gospel, but rather Timothy share in suffering for the gospel. And there's all the difference in the world in that change. Paul is not telling Timothy to go off into the wilderness and be a vigilante sufferer. He's saying, Timothy, all believers are going to suffer. Your task is to step in with them into that suffering and suffer along with that community. Um, one of my favorite animated movies is The Incredibles. Anybody a fan? It's a great movie. Uh, early on in the movie, Mr. Incredible, hero of the story, he's famous for his line, uh, I work alone. Can I just disabuse you of a terrible idea if this ever crossed your mind? You are not Mr. Incredible. We, none of us work alone. None of us are designed to endure suffering all by ourselves. And this has like super practical ramifications. If, if you stub your toe 
I don't care how healthy your hand is, all of your attention goes right to that toe. If one of the members of this body suffers, we all suffer together. This means that we need, to be, we need to be thinking about who are the people in the body who are suffering and how could I come alongside them to encourage them, pray for them, support them. If you're experiencing suffering yourself, you need to think, man, who could I let into this suffering and solicit their prayers and encouragement so that we can go through this together? No Christian is called to be this invincible anvil that could take a million beatings. Instead, we're like little links in the chain. None of us are that impressive. I like what uh, Chris Anderson said when he was here. There's probably not the next Charles Spurgeon in the room right now. No offense to you aspiring preachers. We're all just normal people. But we can be little links in the chain, a strand of believers from the beginning all the way until Christ's return who faithfully endure the suffering that comes with the gospel. That's our calling. So we suffer as a community. A third point. Uh, Every believer suffers uniquely. Actually, sorry, that's the fifth point. Let me give you this third point. Gospel suffering is distinct from general human suffering. Gospel suffering is distinct from general human suffering. Paul says to Timothy, uh, share in suffering specifically for the gospel. And all I want to say here is that as believers, we need to have the wisdom to recognize that there, there is a difference between suffering that comes particularly towards us in a targeted way because of our faith in Christ and then the general suffering that, that all people undergo in the fallen world. I think maybe sometimes we, we can put a bad taste in an unbeliever's mouth if we play pin the tail on the donkey and attribute all of our suffering to, to our faith in Christ. If your neighbor is mean to you, it might not be persecution. You might just have a mean neighbor. If you, if you lost your job, it could be that that's not on account of your faith in Christ. Maybe it just wasn't a good fit, or there's just, you know, it's part of what it means to live in the fallen world. So we need to understand both those things and even recognize that there can be points of overlap and continuity between the two. But just because um, we're suffering in some you know, way that is painful, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're being faithful to the gospel, if that makes sense. So that's something to keep in mind. A fourth truth about suffering, we suffer by God's power. We suffer by God's power. Uh, Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And this one just has with it so much hope because it means that not only do we not suffer alone, but we also don't suffer apart from God and, and his enabling, sustaining work within us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Um, I have kind of a beef right now in life against electric bikes. I grew up pedaling to school. So all these junior high kids right now, they're not learning their lesson, you know, just zipping around on these bikes. But have you ever seen somebody on the side of the road who... Um, is just flying along on their bike, and you're like, whoa, that person is booking. Then you realize that the bike frame is a little thicker than normal, and, and you go, oh, and they're barely pedaling, and you're like, I see what's going on here. Electric bike. Hats off to you, sir. Um, silly illustration, completely silly and probably inadequate, but I am really happy that I don't have to suffer on my own steam and with my own strength. I am really happy that there is a Savior who's come to us and is present in us by the Holy Spirit. To just like put some handles on that for you, sometimes when I think about the indwelling of Christ in us by the Holy Spirit, I picture this. I picture that Jesus has come up behind me, unzipped me, and climbed inside me. And he's starting to live out his own life through me by the power of his Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you in John 14. And then immediately starts to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit 
indwelling believers is the personal ministry of Christ to us, inside of us, enabling us to stand, enabling us to suffer. Sometimes you hear questions, people ask, oh, if you were in a situation like other brothers and sisters are around the world, if someone came and put a gun to your head and said, do you believe in Jesus, what would you do? And I am so thankful that my answer to that question is not dependent on my own strength or supposed spiritual resources or maturity. It's Jesus who enables us to suffer. And if we trust in him and if his spirit is in us, we have the confidence that he is going to preserve us through whatever suffering comes by his sovereign hand. Final uh, of those points, a fifth truth about suffering, and that's just this, every believer suffers uniquely. Every believer suffers uniquely. I would wager that Timothy in his situation was probably going to face more suffering than any of us are going to suffer in this life. The, the early church traditions say that Timothy was actually beaten to death in the streets on account of his gospel preaching. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that many of our brothers and sisters in different countries around the world are enduring suffering that we can probably hardly even conceive of or wrap our minds around on our gloomiest days. Well, what are we to make of that? Does it trivialize our suffering? Does it make it not real? Does it cheapen it? And to that, I think we just need to say, no, God is sovereign, and he distributes all things according to the counsel of his will, including the unique experiences of suffering that each believer undergoes. Our, our task is to be faithful to Jesus, and we leave it in God's hands what suffering might come to us. Even in this room, I would guess that the degrees and kinds of sufferings that we've experienced for the gospel vary dramatically. That's not our concern. Remember when, when after telling Peter in John 21, Peter, you're going to, to have a terrible death, you're going to be crucified upside down. Then Jesus said, what, what is it to you though if John remains? John's going to have a different fate than you are, Peter, and that's okay. I'm in control of all that. Your job is just to be faithful to me. So that can be a helpful thing to keep in mind. I want to do this. We're coming towards a close. I want to just offer two practical encouragements. Um, I want to offer two practical encouragements to us in light of these different truths about suffering. If you wanted those again, they're these. Uh, Suffering is necessary. We suffer as a community. Gospel suffering is distinct from human suffering. We suffer by God's power, and every believer suffers uniquely. Let me just give two practical points of application. Number one, if you're a parent... You need to raise your kids to expect suffering for the gospel. Like we said before, I would imagine that things are not getting you know, brighter for Christians in our context. Very memorable conversation. It's probably going to stay in my mind for my entire life. Some of the, the guys were up at Shepherd's Conference, a pastor's conference, older guys, younger guys, elders, some of the younger pastors and younger guys in the church, And as we're kind of debriefing one of the days, one of the elders just looks at all the younger guys and says, gentlemen, I hope you're ready to suffer for the gospel that we all love. Because if if I'm seeing things right, I bet by the time you're my age, things are going to look wildly different than they do now. That just like sticks in your mind because you think about the potential cost and you, you come to grips with that. If you're a parent right now, if our goal is to just trickle down a few tidbits of you know, gospel truth and hope that it magically has some transforming effect, it's insufficient. We need, to, we need to think about raising a generation of people, or if you're a young person yourself, equip, being equipped and prepared and so delighted in the gospel that you'd be willing to endure the suffering that comes as a result. Some of us might go to different places in the world and experience that kind of suffering. 
We don't know, but we need to be preparing and equipping and praying towards a day of potentially greater suffering. Second point of application. Many of our family members around the world are suffering in ways that, that we could barely imagine. And I just want to encourage you, if you haven't already, avail yourself of the resources that could link you up with those people in prayer and potentially in other ways as well. Voice of the Martyrs, Operation World, Joshua Project, World Watch List, uh, what's it called? Something from the front. Uh, dispatches from the front. Great video series. Just ways to stay engaged with what's happening to, to brothers and sisters of ours around the world. Uh, Hebrew says, remember those who are in prison as though you were suffering there with them. And so part of the way that we can share in suffering is to embrace their suffering as our own. We want to be faithful to Christ. We want to cherish the gospel. We want to prepare to share in whatever suffering may come as a result. As we close right now, I just want to do this. I think sometimes we can talk a lot about the gospel. Uh, We want to be gospel-centered. We want to love the gospel. And almost accidentally, we can just skip right by what the gospel actually is. And so as we close, I just want to ask, what is this testimony that we cherish and for which we'd be willing to suffer? And it's the good news that begins all the way in the beginning. It's the good news that there is a good God, triune, Father, Son, Spirit, who created a good and beautiful and colorful and wonderful world. And in the midst of that world, placed humanity to be in unique relationship with him and to represent him to the world. It is the good news that includes the bad news, that our first fathers betrayed the king, rebelled against God, cast us all into sin, broke everything, broke you and me. It's why the world is so broken around us. It is the good news that there was a promised one, a man who would come to right all wrong, to put things back together, to restore humanity's relationship with God. It is the good news that at the right time, God sent his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those who suffer under the law. It's the good news that this man was fully, truly God, able to do what no other man could do, and yet truly human as well, able to stand in the place of his people. It's the good news that Jesus lived righteously while on earth that he proclaimed to people, the kingdom is at hand in my life. And if you turn from your sins and pledge your allegiance to me, all is forgiven. You will have life now abundantly and life forever eternally. It's the good news that Jesus our Savior went to the cross for his people and suffered there not just the pain and the shame of the Roman cross, but the wrath of Almighty God poured out on him for all of our sins, all of the sins of everybody who would trust in Christ. It is the good news that that same man, after three days in the grave, rose again as the Lord of all. He's king. He's triumphed over sin and death, beaten it, defeated it, brought life and immortality to light. It is the good news that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, from which position he rules and ever lives to make intercession for us. It is the good news that Jesus will return He's coming back to restore this world to what it was designed to be, a beautiful palace to display the glory of God, which will be enjoyed by a redeemed people for all eternity. That's the gospel we cherish. That is the gospel for which, if necessary, we would be willing to suffer the loss of anything we hold dear on earth, even our own lives. And that is the gospel which those of us who believe in Christ will celebrate and rejoice in and sing about forever and ever and ever. Lord, thank you so much for the gospel. We pray that you would make us a people who cherish it, that we would be faithful to what you've called us to. We pray that you would make us a people who would endure suffering faithfully by your power together. We pray uh, that in all of this, you would find us faithful. And we know that it's all 
for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand in close singing forever Jesus together this morning. Shall be forever, Jesus, my firm foundation in shifting sands, my strength and hope through many fears and failures, the disappointments of the past, his constant love has held me. So for all my days, I will sing my praise to the King forever, Jesus. Though the storms may rage, He is strong to save. He's the King forever. joy shall be forever, Jesus, who bore my suffering, who made a way, his life a gift, his death a precious ransom, that wipes the sinner's guilt away, and turns our Jesus. 
Notes for you, things coming up at Grace. The missions course is coming starting September 19th, six to, uh, Tuesday nights in a row. would encourage you to, to think about signing up for that and joining us. If you haven't already, it's going to be a great time together. Uh, Grace Orange Academy is uh, launching this fall classes, Bible classes on Friday morning for people grades 4th through 12th. And Wednesday, the 31st, is the last day to register for that if you're interested. Men's and women's retreats are coming up, uh, so you can sign up for those. Gentlemen, you'll get a free t uh, t-shirt if you register, and there's lots more coming up at Grace as well. Women of the Word, Men of the Word, uh, Midweek uh, Service, Adventure Club beginning, uh, so lots to look forward to. Let's close by reading uh, from the end of the book of Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the, pre the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor,